Well, good evening to each one. I greet you in Jesus' name. It is a blessing to be here, privileged to be here. Uh, makes me feel young again to be here. I was looking over the list of names of the students in the Bible school here and the ages, and it suddenly hit me that when I was your age, you weren't. <laughs> and so that makes you think you're a little bit older than what you really are. But I enjoy these times uh, being in the presence of young people and youth and being willing to share. So the emphasis this weekend, although it is Thursday evening, we'll call it the weekend, the emphasis, emphasis of the weekend is missions. And I don't know what it is that qualifies you to speak on missions. I don't know if you thought that this Randy Hurst was someone who probably spent three, four, maybe a 15 years across seas or in another country somewhere. I don't know if that's what qualifies you to speak on missions. Uh, I don't know if it's spending years doing street evangelism or prison work or I, I, what is it that qualifies you to speak on missions? I have not spent years in another country. But I have, over the years, developed a burden for lost souls. And I probably first developed that burden back in 1999 in the city of Chicago. I was 21 to something like that, I believe, and I went along with some youth from our group to a mission weekend, an evangelistic weekend in the city of Chicago. And saw firsthand there a lot of needs, a lot of ugly, blatant lostness. And got into rescue missions and saw tremendous need and tremendous lostness and got into homeless shelters, women with their children, fatherless children. And I remember one evening a young, young child, he was probably four or five, took a liking to me in one of these missions. We were playing with the children. Took a liking to me, wouldn't leave me. Walked around by my side all evening long. Uh, sat down, he would get up beside me and get on my lap. Uh, if I stood up, he wanted me to put, put him on my shoulders and walk him around. And at some point during that evening, he looked at me and he said, uh, would you be my dad? And all of a sudden hit me, we were in a women's shelter, and there was these young children here, and he probably didn't have a dad that he knew. And just overall during that week there, developing a sense of need that there is in the world. The story doesn't stop there. I came home back to my community, and... Very shortly, I think it was within a couple days after arriving home, we had a men's meeting at our church. And it was one of those men's meetings that was very unpleasant to be at. A lot of harsh words spoken, a lot of bad attitudes flying around. And I had just gotten back from Chicago, seeing the needs there, 
feeling blessed to be part of a Christian family and sitting in my church and hearing this going on, the unrest, the unsettledness, the complaining, the bad attitudes. And I just wanted to stand up there and say, folks, do you, do you realize what you have? But I was young. I didn't. Not long after that, our church split. And my prayer over that time was, God, I don't care where it is, whether it's in a city, whether it's in my home community, whether it's somewhere else. I just want to be available to help needy people. And God's given me a lot of opportunity over the years to help needy people, whether it's been in my home community or otherwise. And so I'm not sure what you thought I would promote this weekend, whether it would be foreign missions, whether it would be work in your local churches, your communities, what it would be. But I guess my burden for this weekend is that you each day would experience the mission heart of God and be gripped with a burden for lost humanity and that you would desire to be a laborer in God's mission field, wherever that is. And so I divided these couple sessions up a little bit this way. I want to talk tonight a little bit about the motivation for mission work. And another message I want to talk more specifically to the person. I'll title that in the missionary. The motivation, the missionary. And then the third one, the manual. I'm not even going to try to explain what that's going to be. I have to preach it to explain it, so you'll have to be present for that. And then the last one, the mandate, the call of God. The motivation, what, what motivates us? What is the motivation for mission work, for being involved in mission? What, what is the motivation? Oswald, Oswald Chambers says it this way, and I quote, A missionary is someone sent by Jesus Christ just as he was sent by God. The great motiva motivating factor is not the needs of people, but the command of Jesus Christ. And so the thing that should motivate us, as Jesus said, as the Father has sent me, so send I you. And we can see a lot of needs around us that motivate us, and that could be a good motivating factor. But the thing that should motivate us is it's a command of Jesus Christ. Go, be involved into a world that is dark and lost. Turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Second Corinthians 5, verse 16. Wherefore, henceforth, Know we no man after the flesh, yea, 
Though we have known Christ after the flesh, yet now henceforth know we him no more. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. All things are of God, who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ, and hath given to us the ministry of reconciliation, to wit, that God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God did beseech you by us, we pray you in Christ's stead, be ye reconciled to God, for he hath made him to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. The very God who in creation said, let there be light. I believe God has the ability in this dark world to shine the light of the gospel into the darkest night, the darkest part of the world. That same authority that said, let there be light, and light came into existence, could light the darkest part of the world. But God chose to commit to us, to commit to humans, the word of reconciliation. It's your responsibility, it's my responsibility. Romans chapter 10. Verse 13, for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach except they be sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace and bring glad tidings of good things. And in John 20, Jesus said unto them, Peace be unto you, as my Father hath sent me, even so send I you. And Jesus Christ's mission on this world was to do the will of the Father. Whatever the Father asked, that was what Jesus Christ did with his life, fulfilling the will of the Father. And so our mission should be the will of the Father. Whatever God wills, wherever God wills, should be our mission. Some of the different things that motivate. I want you to think about Jesus Christ, what motivated him. Multitudes or individuals? The many or the few? What motivated Christ? And I'm going to read some, a couple of scriptures here. You don't have to turn to them. Mark 6. And the people saw them departing, and many knew him, and ran afoot thither out of the cities, and outwent them, and came together unto him. And Jesus, when he came out, saw much people, and was moved with compassion toward them, because they were as sheep not having a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. Jesus 
seeing the multitude, was moved within himself. It motivated him to do something. There was all these people as sheep without a shepherd. And so it motivated, the multitudes motivated him. There's an interesting account in Matthew chapter 15. Uh, it's surrounded by the account, I think. I didn't check this out, but I think in Matthew 15 is where Jesus fed a great multitude of people. But then there's a little section in, in Matthew chapter 15 where it says, Jesus departed to the coast of Tyre and Sidon. And it is thought that from where he was to the coast of Tyre and Sidon was probably a 50-mile walk or however he got there. 50-mile and while he was there, there came a woman crying after him. And the disciples came to Jesus and said, we'll send this woman away. And Jesus had a conversation with the woman. And in the process, he healed her daughter. And then it says he departed and went to Galilee. The only recorded event was his conversation in the healing of this woman's daughter. All those many mouths motivated by that need. Multitudes are the few. About two years ago, I was in Highland County, Virginia, having meetings. I don't know if any, anybody knows where Highland County, Virginia even is. But if you think about the East Coast, a lot of times you think about a lot of people and a lot of uh, population. But Highland County, Virginia is not very populated. Highland County is 400 square miles. And the population in the whole 400 square miles of Highland County is 2,000 people. I left... Highland County, after that week, and the very next weekend, I was in the city of Los Angeles, California. And the greater Los Angeles area covers about 465 square miles, and the population within that is a conservative number, is 4 million. And I couldn't help but to think about the difference between Highland County, Virginia, in the greater Los Angeles area. When I was in Highland County, I would get in my car and I could drive for a half hour and I would probably pass two cars and about 30 deer. And in LA, you would, it would be five lanes going both ways, bumper to bumper traffic and no deer. The one fresh mountain air, the other city smog. The Sunday morning service in Highland County, there were 80 people in attendance. That's about 4% of the population of the county. And I thought to myself, if we had 4% of the population of the greater Los Angeles area present for a Sunday morning service, it's about 160,000 people. And so extreme differences, <clears throat> multitudes in the few. But as I got around Highland County and as I entered into Los Angeles, there's, there's things that are very similar. There's still needs there. There's still lost people there. And there's still those that know 
Jesus Christ in a personal way. And sometimes it's more tempting for us to be motivated by multitudes of people. And we forget the few. And so I wonder tonight if you have spent any time in a large city handing out thousands of tracts. Maybe that was something exciting and motivating. But you've never witnessed to a neighbor. Maybe you went into your local city rescue mission and you fed a multitude of people. But was your, na- <clears throat> was your neighbor ever at your kitchen table? Maybe you haven't had that opportunity. Maybe it would thrill your heart to take Bibles into the smuggling them into China. But your coworker don't have a Bible, never was offered one. What motivates? A number of years ago, my wife and I were hosting a youth meeting, and one of the things we did was, or the, the event for the evening, we gave, we, we divided the youth group into about five different groups, and we gave them each a box, and in that box was a number of different items that they were to use uh, going around the community and just doing random acts, there was things like tracks, a Bible, a bouquet of flowers, uh, paper towels and Windex, and just a number of things you could do anything with, uh, just needed to use them. And in one of the groups was a young man, part of the youth group, and he saw the Bible in his box, and he all of a sudden felt led to give that Bible to a young man who had been a peer in the youth group at one time and had left, still lived in the local area. They would have been youth together at one time. As he saw his Bible, he felt led to take that Bible and give to that young man. And he took the Bible up and he knocked on the door and he presented this peer a Bible said, I just wanted you to have this. You know, the point's not what that young man did with the Bible necessarily, whether it sat on the shelf or whether it went in the trash. The point is that one more time, on this side of eternity, that young man had to take the word of God in his hand and make a decision what he was going to do with it. One more time, he was face-to-face with truth and had to make a decision. Am I going to open it up? Am I going to read it? Or will I deliberately put it on the shelf or in the trash can? What motivates you? Was Christ motivated by children or adults? It seems like these days there's a lot of children's ministries happening. It's a very good thing. I'm not, I'm not opposed to children's ministries at all. But sometimes you see children are very, uh, often very receptive and very open. 
And I know they're very hard to work with sometimes and they create a lot of stress. But for the most part, they're very open and receptive. And so it motivates us because here is someone that is receptive. Here's someone that actually, actually wants to be involved, wants to be in this children's ministry program. But I found over the years it's hard to find people to make a church plant where there's adults involved because there's just not a lot to motivate there. Adults aren't as open and receptive. They have learned over the years to reject Jesus. In Luke 18, and he brought unto him also the infants that he would touch them. But when his disciples saw it, they rebuked him. But Jesus called them and said unto him, and said, Suffer the little children to come unto me, and forbid them not, for of such is the kingdom of God. Mark 18, Take heed that ye despise not one of these little ones. For I say unto you that in heaven their angels do always behold the face of my Father which is in heaven. And so I think children didn't motivate Jesus Christ. And I think his heart was moved toward children. And I think ours should be too. <clears throat> but then think of Jesus' relation, relation to the rich young ruler. In his conversation with Nicodemus and the women at the well. And when the disciples came, they said, come and eat. And he looked out and he said, the fields are ripe. He was motivated by the needs in adults as well. The motivating factor, I don't think, should be whether they're children or adults. It should be that there are eternal souls, whether they're children or, ad or adults. And so my plea to you tonight is that you can be as motivated to get involved in a church plant effort as a children's ministries. And I know it takes effort. We had a Bible study going on in our town of Hagerstown, Maryland. We, were in, we did prison ministries for a number of years, and we felt like there should be a transition. When they get out of prison, can we meet them where they're at, which was the city of Hagerstown, so that when they get out of prison, we can continue on with a Bible study. And so we would invite them. It was, it was a detention center, so there was a lot of in and out. This wasn't long-term prison. When you get out, this is where we are. We will continue to have a Bible study. And we didn't, it wasn't just for prison. We went up and down the streets of Hagerstown, knocked on doors, invited people, come. Very few. One old man was a regular. He'd come most every night. You'd ask him a question, he'd just smile. He wouldn't talk. Fifteen minutes into the Bible study, he'd be sleeping. He'd sleep 15 or 20 minutes and wake up. Very difficult. There's eternal souls at stake. And something similar to that is, are you motivated to evangelize or to disciple? Oftentimes, the evangelistic work is what seems exciting. 
to go out and to evangelize and to offer the gospel message, to go to a rescue mission, to preach a message, to give an invitation, to go have meetings somewhere. That's the fun and the exciting work. But then the hard work is discipleship. The hard work is when you're walking along beside someone who is in deep bondage to some kind of sin and takes time and it takes effort and lots of time and many hours. I think Jesus cared about evangelism and he cared about discipleship. He cared that there would be those that discipled new believers. And sometimes I hear people trying to divide this issue, evangelism and discipleship, and one's better than the other. You need this or you need this, and you can't have evangelism without discipleship or I just want to read out of 1 Corinthians chapter 3. You can turn to this. First Corinthians chapter 3, verse 4. For while one saith, I am of Paul, and another, I am of Apollos, are ye not carnal? Who then is Paul? Thank you. And who is Apollos? But ministers by whom ye believed, even as the Lord gave to every man. I have planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. So then, neither is he that planteth anything, neither he that watereth, but God that giveth the increase. Now he that planteth and he that watereth are one, and every man shall receive his own reward according to his own labor. For we are laborers together with God, you are God's husbandry, you are God's building. According to the grace of God which is given unto me as a, wide master, as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation, another buildeth thereon, but let every man take heed how he buildeth thereupon. For other foundation can no man lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. There are those that will evangelize, and there are those that will disciple. And there are those that are more gifted in evangelizing, and there are, the more, there are those that are more gifted in discipleship. And I don't think we should raise one up above the other. We need them both. We need the evangelists, and we need those that are willing to water. As this says, disciple. And we need to work together. And we real, need to realize that we need each other, and ultimately it's God that gives the increase. And then, are you motivated by light, or are you motivated by darkness? Now let me just clarify what I mean by that. Are you so thrilled about the light that you want to take the light of the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ and pierce the darkness? Or are you so appalled 
by the darkness and the wretchedness that you see around you, that you want to take your light and shine amidst that darkness. In Jude 1, 22, And some have compassion making a difference, and others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garment spotted by the flesh. I want to think about, for a little bit tonight, a light in the darkness. And why in our society and in our world the darkness is ever deepening around us, ever getting darker. I think there are three primary reasons why the darkness is ever deepening around us. And this world is getting darker and darker. Number one is because Satan is blinded folks' minds to the light. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Verse 3, 2 Corinthians 4, 3, But if our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost, in whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. For we preach not ourselves, but Jesus Christ the Lord, and ourselves your servants for Jesus' sake. And one of the reasons that darkness is ever deepening around us is because Satan is blinding the minds of all those folks to the light. And that is deception. There's a light that is shining, but there are those that do not see it because their eyes are blinded to the light. There's another reason if the darkness is ever deepening around us, and that is that men love darkness. Turn to John chapter 3. John chapter 3, verse 18. He that believeth on him is not condemned, But he that believeth not is condemned already, because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation, that light is come into the world, and men loved darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. For every one that doeth evil hateth the light, neither cometh to the light, lest his deeds should be reproved. But he that doeth truth cometh to the light that his deeds may be manifested they are wrought in God. And so not only has Satan blinded the minds of folks to the light, there are those that want to reclude back into the shadows. They hate the light. The light exposes them, and so they back away from it into the darkness. And the darkness ever deepens. And the third reason 
as the darkness cannot comprehend the light. And I don't want to do, I don't want to draw things out of this passage that we shouldn't. But in first, in John, not first John, John chapter one, we have these words. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shineth in darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. There was a light shining, and the darkness didn't comprehend it. And so God sent this man, he sent John, that he could bear witness of the light. That there were those that saw the light that could comprehend it. There was someone who was sent to bear witness of the light. And I fear that there are those in our world who are lost in darkness, who see the light but they can't comprehend it. They don't know, they don't understand. And that, I believe, should be a motivating factor for each child of God. To each person that has the light, that has the light of the gospel, or there are those that see the light, but they cannot comprehend it. What are you doing with your light I read the verses out of 2 Corinthians that said, you are ambassadors for Christ. You are ambassadors for the light. And I want to make a little analogy tonight, here in the final moments, to think about this light and darkness and to motivate you to shine your light in the darkness. The analogy goes something like this. I want you to think about this room. We have basically four walls of this room, and inside this building is light. Okay, outside of this building is darkness, extreme darkness. I'm not talking about just the physical darkness because the sun went down. I'm talking about Darkness such as, you remember the plague in Egypt in Exodus chapter 10, where it says the darkness could be felt. I don't even think they could get up and leave their beds because of the darkness. It was just so dark, very dark, cannot see, cannot move. In Revelation chapter 16, the angel pours out darkness on the earth. And I think it talks about the chains of darkness. And also references the blackness of darkness forever. That is the darkness that I'm talking about. Black, dark. And the reason it is light in here is because there are believers here that have the glorious gospel light of Jesus Christ shining and reflecting out of their lives and their their, their, their testimony, their life, it's light, it's bright. So there's a lot of light in this room, but outside it is dark. Intensely dark. And out in that dark world, 
the Christians are the only light. In John chapter 8, then spake Jesus unto them, saying, I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. For as, as long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. I am come a light into the world that whosoever believeth on me should not abide in darkness. And in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says, Ye are the light of the world, a city that is set on a hill, <coughs> excuse me, cannot be hid. Neither do men light a candle and put it under a bushel, but on a candlestick, and it giveth light to all that are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. And so it's light, because you know Jesus Christ. You have that glorious light shining, and outside it's intensely dark. And so maybe there are those outside that are looking in, and they, they see that in here is light. And out there, they cannot find their way. They're groping about in darkness and the blackness. And they're stumbling. But there's, there's light coming from this building. And maybe they're attracted to the light. Maybe they come into the building and they experience the light. This is something new. This is something different. I'm not in darkness now. It's light here. What is it with this building? And then as Christians fall out of this building, it becomes intensely dark in here, and they find out it's not the building. And maybe they can't find their way out of this building, and so they sit here in this building till the next time the Christians come back, and there's light again. And maybe as the Christians leave the building this time, they Follow the Christians out. Maybe they follow them to their homes. And they find out that where the Christian is, there is light. And there's not only light here, but there's light in their home. There's light wherever they go. And maybe they start asking questions. Where does this light come from? What if the light that shone from you was dependent upon your spiritual vitality. How much light would be in this room or as you walked out into the darkness, how much light would be coming from you? If your spiritual vibrancy was what determined the amount of light as you walked out, would people be able to follow you? Would they be able to see where they were going? As they walked into your home, would they be able to see the light there? Into your church, into this building. And if your spiritual vitality is dependent upon your relationship to Jesus Christ... And your time spent 
feeding the spiritual part of your life, whether it's praying, whether it's reading the Bible, whether it's listening to good music, whether it's talking to a good friend, whatever it does is feeding that part. If your light is dependent on that, then how bright are you? And I'll tell you why it matters. It matters because we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. There is a battle going on. Light and darkness are in a conflict. There's a battle that is taking place. And this isn't a physical battle. This isn't, you are not going to war with somebody out side who is walking in darkness. There is a spiritual conflict that is taking place. Else why would it say we wrestle not against flesh and blood? In Mark chapter 9, Jesus said unto them, his disciples came and they were trying to cast out a devil out of a young child, I believe it was, and they couldn't do it. They came to Jesus and said, we can't, we can't get this done. And Jesus came, he cast out that demon, and the disciples said, why couldn't we do it? And Jesus said, this kind comes out only, only by prayer and fasting. That's it. And in Luke chapter 4, in his synagogue, there was a man which had a spirit of an unclean devil and cried out with a loud voice, saying, Let us alone, what have we to do with thee, thou Jesus of Nazareth? Art thou come to destroy us? I know thee who thou art, the Holy One of God. And there's an interesting story in Acts. Those seven sons of Siva, I think their names were. That's how they're recorded in Scripture. And they saw all the works that the apostles were doing, and they said, let's do that. And they tried to cast a devil out of someone, and the devils looked at these men. They say, Jesus we know, and Paul we know, but who are you? And so there is a battle that is taking place in the spiritual world. And so I want you to think back to the analogy of dark outside and the Christians bearing light. And I want you to think about someone that you probably know tonight who is sitting in darkness. It might be some family member. It might be a friend. It might be somebody you met in your local town, it might be a neighbor, but there's someone you know that is sitting in darkness, surrounded by darkness. And I wonder if you think about, as you're trying to present the light to that person, that there's a spiritual battle that is taking place. Do you think about that there are probably those messengers of darkness that are trying to conceal your light Maybe they're trying to knock the light out of your hand however they can. 
Maybe as you're presenting that light to that person that's sitting in darkness, they're surrounding that person with their darkness, with their chains. And sometimes at our prayer meetings that we have in the middle of the week, sometimes they're not always the most attended meetings. And we give out names. Let's pray for this person. Let's pray for that person. And do you think about when those names are mentioned and the people of God get on their knees to pray, that there's a battle taking place? And maybe, that, maybe you're praying for that individual you know who is sitting in darkness. And maybe collectively you are together in prayer. And as you're praying, the messengers of light, the angels of light, the ministers of God are going to that person that is surrounded by the messengers of darkness and they start to do battle. And as you pray, they are fighting and they make a way into this person that's sitting in darkness. And there's a path that is opened. And maybe you conclude your prayer and you go home and maybe the darkness gathers back around. And maybe you spend the day fasting for that individual. And again, that path is made and it opens up and light can get into that person that's sitting in darkness. You know, the sad thing is we can't reach in and pull that person out of darkness. But I think through our prayer, through our intercession, we can make a way for that person to get up and to walk out of darkness and to make that choice. But it's a battle. And I hope that motivates your heart toward mission work, toward a mission field, whatever that field is. This last election that we had, there were a lot of motivated people during that election. There were a lot of speeches given, many, many arguments and I read it many, many times on the news throughout this last election. I think both sides, whether they were leaning right or leaning left, made the comment, the battle for the soul of a nation. And there was a lot of motivation there because of the extreme consequences of what they felt the outcome of this election might bring. But the battle for the soul of a nation will never be won by the strongest argument or the loudest voice or the most eloquent speaker or the most influential person. The battle for the soul of the nation will only be won when the light of the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ shines. And that is your responsibility tonight as a Christian, and I hope that motivates you. Let's bow our heads for prayer. Our Father in heaven, we come to you tonight, and we thank you again for this time together, and we thank you for this 
tremendous amount of potential that is in this room tonight. And so, God, I pray that you would, even now, begin to work in hearts and show where we can both best benefit the kingdom of God. And you know the needs that are in the world, and you know our abilities. And so I just pray that we would be faithful to do the will of the Father wherever that may be, whether it's faithfulness in our home communities, in our churches, or whether it's faithfulness on a mission field in another country, or wherever that is. But that we would be motivated as carriers of the gospel light of Jesus Christ to shine in a dark world. I commit this time to you, and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.